Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, July the 26th, 2023. Yesterday, I finally did it. I went to the movies to see Barbie. I didn't really want to see it, but I'm doing a show with Olivia uh, Ruttigliano, the uh, Lit Hub film critic, later this week on Barbie. We did one yesterday. Uh, we did one last week with Oppenheimer. Uh, so I had to see it. It was kind of interesting, I guess, in its own way. Uh, a lot of pink in it. Uh, as somebody said in the New York Times, uh, Barbie may never have been a great symbol, but she's an excellent mirror of our sexual politics. And one of the things as a mirror that most occurred to me having seen it is it's as much a film, if not more of a film about men than it is about women. Uh, Ryan Gosling plays Ken, brilliant Ken in the film. And in many ways, it's uh, a film about not really being able to save men, the uh, ongoing and um, complicated, shall we say, relations between men and women and the struggle for men to keep up with women in the early 21st century. In a sense, then, it's a movie about men not being able to be saved, which is an appropriate subject. Uh, you can buy, by the way, a, a doll of Ken, if you want, from Mattel. Uh, but the idea of men not being able to be saved is an appropriate subject for today's show because... Uh, my guest, Ben Perkett, uh, has a new novel out, The Men Can't Be Saved, a uh, very interesting book about perhaps the role of men in early 21st century life. Uh, ben is joining us from Jersey City. Um, welcome, Ben. Uh, have you seen Barbie? I haven't. I haven't. You'll have to tell me all about it. Did I uh, pique your interest? Well, I mean, you did your part, but also... I'm seeing, I mean, I'm seeing it everywhere, right? Everyone is, uh, did you get yeah. your, did you get yourself photographed in the Barbie box? Mm, I wish, I wish that Mattel would make a, make a doll of me and then I wouldn't have to do this show. Um, and it was interesting, the, the theater I saw it at, uh, appropriately enough in the Mission District of San Francisco, the Alamo, it was full of young women. There weren't a lot of young men. Uh, we've done many shows, Ben, on men in the early 20th, uh, 21st century, one in particular with Richard Reeves. Um, he has a, a quite a controversial new book out of Boys and Men, why, why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why It Matters and What to Do About It. Your book, of course, is a novel, but it does focus on the modern male. Is, is there something um, odd and disconcerting about the position of men in, 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 in the America of the 2020s? Well... It's a big question. I think that if we look at a lot of society's problems, it's not a stretch to trace them back to, frankly, a lot of men, right? A lot of men behaving badly and making bad decisions have led us to the place where we are today. My book, you know, I'm, I'm interested in this question of can men be saved? I'm also interested in the question of can masculinity be saved? Is it salvageable? And would we even want to? When I grew up, the notion of masculinity, at least as it was presented to me, was one that was really antithetical to intimacy. It was antithetical to a kind of vulnerability. 
Uh, and the characters in my novel, they, they lack those same qualities, even as they really yearn for them, right? For connection and for um, camaraderie and things like that. So, uh, I, you know, what I would say is I, I think we need to think hard about what masculinity would look like if we built it back from the ground up. Yeah, and actually, um, you definitely have to see Barbie because it is a film about what masculinity should or can be in the 2020s and yeah. uh, is uh, a sort of an, a relentless attack, a critique on traditional notions of masculinity. What, what do you mean by it? Are you suggesting that traditional notions of masculinity are, by definition, incompatible with notions of intimacy and vulnerability? No, not by definition, but by how we've defined them. Um, when I think about, I mean, I'll just give you a, a small example. Do you watch soccer? Football? Uh, I watch football, not soccer. Exactly. I, I figured you'd, you'd make that distinction, that, that correction. Um, one of the things that struck me watching right now, the Women's World Cup is going on. But watching the Men's World Cup, uh, it's always fascinating to me to see the displays of affection between players, um, whether it's like a kiss on the cheek or just a hand on the forehead, or th th there's just such um, closeness and such touch. And when you watch a lot of American athletes, pretty much in, in every sport, and even the, the US soccer team to a large extent, there's no displays of that. And is that because of homophobia? Is it because of just a fear of, you know, getting close to, to other men? Is it because we, um, we just, we just haven't had those models. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that men don't deserve saving or don't deserve, you know, or, or should just be sort of thrown out of our society, cast away. That doesn't work. But I do think we need to think hard, particularly men about how we contribute to the ways in which these notions of masculinity perpetuate themselves? How, how can we push back? The way you present it, you're suggesting that uh, people want to be close to others. Is it conceivable, Ben, do you think, to be happy and, and not to have intimacy or not to be vulnerable? Is that traditional notion of masculinity, is it a lie or was it a, a relic of a, of a different moment in history? Well, no man is an island. Right. And I think that in the U.S., we have this obsession with the rugged individual, this idea of the lone ranger, the, the man who goes off on their own. And, you know, I, I, I don't know to what extent any any, you know, any of those um, archetypes ever proved to. Right. Like the self-made man, you zoom out. Well, not self-made. Right. There's people around him and there's a support network and there, there's always there's always a larger story so why is it then that we celebrate you know the the, the single individual man well what, what what does that mean for us i think it, i think it's lonely i think it's a lonely image and a lot of what i've seen in terms of op-eds recently have been about the loneliness crisis women seem to just maintain and build and invest in friendships over the course of their lives whereas men just often drift away. So I don't think it's that they have nothing to talk to each other about. I don't think it's that they are willfully letting those relationships die on the vine. I think that 
they maybe just don't know how. This this area, I don't want to keep on going on about Barbie because it probably gets boring after a while. But it the the story in Barbie is the way in which men traditionally, well, sorry, women traditionally, or the traditional female of the nineteen fifties, the traditional support network for the men, they enabled men to be uh, cowboys, shall we say, separate. Uh, the, the, the traditional historical reading is women have moved on and men haven't. Is there any truth to that, Ben? Do you think that men are still stuck in the middle of the 20th century, that they had everything back then? They had supportive wives. They had independent lives. They had jobs. They had the dominant position in the culture and in the economy, and everything's been turned on its head, and yet men are still stuck in the past. Well, I think if you think about something like MAGA, if you think about Make America Great Again, it's entirely looking backward, right? And I think that that, I mean, certainly that slogan, that politics does not appeal to me, but I do think that there is an appeal there that is targeted, particularly at men who, as exactly as you put it, you know, can look back uh, a few generations or even just one generation and see certain advantages uh, that they, you know, whether rightly or wrongly, they feel that they no longer have. So I think that that, that appeal, you know, tells, tells the story to some extent. Uh, your book has been acclaimed. Lots of uh, nice reviews on Kirkus and on Publishers Weekly. Um, Alexandra Kleeman noted that uh, you nailed down the hypocrisies of modern masculinity and capitalism with the graceful hand of of, of the poet, which you are, your, your previous book was one of poetry. Um, was that, two questions here, um, uh, Ben. Firstly, was that the goal of the book, to nail down the hypocrisies of modern masculinity and capitalism? And do you see those two things intertwined, inseparable? Hmm. Those are good questions. It was not the goal of the book. Um, I don't write my poems or my fiction on the basis of an agenda, or at least an agenda that's transparent to me, right? I mean, I suppose every person, every writer has their own agenda, but I didn't sit down and say, wow, I really want to skewer masculinity, or wow, I really want to take apart capitalism. Um, I think that my goal was simply to write the best novel that I could. I wanted to write characters who had depth, who were compelling. I wanted to write a piece, write a novel that, you know, looked at the workplace specifically, the modern day branding slash advertising agency. In the same way that, for example, Mad Men looked at the agency of the 1960s, I wanted to, to set it in the current day. Um, but I do think that over the course of, I spent about a, a decade on this book, over the course of writing the book and then revising it, it became clear to me what certain intentions I had or what certain obsessions that I've been carrying and maybe not even aware of. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I think the book is deeply concerned with where capitalism has led us, particularly with respect to consumerism and brand culture and the ways in which agencies construct uh, a frame for the products that you know, they, they wanna sell to us as badly as possible. The question of masculinity 
are masculinity and capitalism intertwined? Or are they connected somewhere? I, you know, how could they not be? I, I, I would say absolutely. The crisis of work and of jobs is again a very uh, a very popular theme. Uh, your book asks what our jobs do to our souls, but I wonder whether it's what our jobs do to our male souls or what our jobs do to the souls of men. We've done a number of shows on work, one with Simone Stoltzoff. He has a new book out, The Good Enough Job, Reclaiming Life from Work. It's a kind of nonfiction accompaniment, I think, to, to your book. Um, is there something male, uh, uh, Ben, about being dissatisfied with the the, the, the spiritual poverty of the typical workplace of advertising or of tech or of banking or of law and perhaps women are better at compromising and are simply accepting that that's what life and work is you know i'm uncomfortable making generalizations like that about all women or all men in terms of their response i know i understand and i and i know there are always exceptions of course yeah i i think you know I think the question of, because, I mean, you're right, right? The, the book doesn't ask what does work do to the souls of men, but it says our souls, right? Which implies, you know, all, all people. I, I, I think that is a concern that doesn't just fall on men alone. I think that I, you know, my first job out of college was working as a, as a tagline copywriter, just like the main character in my novel. And, you know, that working in the agency world like I did, it was fascinating to see the people who treated the job as a kind of artistry, whether it's writing a tagline or creating a logo that, that we were, we were doing the work of artists in a sense, um, because it is so close to art. And on the other hand, you had people who viewed it very much as just work, right? Nine to five. Yeah. It's a logo, but I could be making a widget. It doesn't really matter. It's just, it's just another, product essentially to be sold and consumed and i think that that worldview or at least that mindset is one that you know pe people of all of all you know stripes and colors experience in work which is to say what is the meaning of my work does it have substance is it am i creating brands which are effectively like a shallow exterior label a mask in a sense or am I doing something deeper, something that feels more soulful, something that's more connected to my life's purpose, whatever that may be? So I, I think this is a question that we all face. Yeah, and it's ironic. In my conversation with Stoltzoff, he's arguing that we need to reclaim our life from work. He says in his book, um, The Good Enough Job, that, um, that we need to reclaim our life from work, that your generation has been over-promised in college. You could, get these expensive educations, you're promised to be everything and reform the world, and then you go out and get a job as a copywriter, as you say, if you're lucky. Um, and he said, you just got to accept that work is work and meaning is in life. And in an odd way, and I talked to him about this, it's a return to the 50s. It's a return to the man in the gray suit, simply accepting it, accepting that the counterculture in the 60s and all that promise wasn't realized. Do you think there's some truth to that? Do you think Stoltzoff is right, that we simply have to accept that we're not going to get our spiritual meaning, if there is such a thing, from work itself? 
No, I don't think so. I think that we need to, as best we can, strive to do better. And that's not me judging anyone who takes a job for whatever reasons. There are all kinds of reasons why we take jobs that we don't find meaning in. We have to pay rent. We've got mouths to feed. We've got parents to support. I mean, sometimes you just have to take a job and you can't even entertain the question of, am I personally invested in this job or not? But if you do have the luxury of selecting a job and taking that mindset of, you know, does this fulfill me? I, I, I don't think that the road forward is to just sort of button up that suit that you're describing and put on the tie and go to work and tough it out and then live the rest of your life as if that job is just isolated from, from whatever it is you're meant to do. I, I think we need to maybe think more deeply if, if we have the luxury of doing so. Because I'm not sure this has led us on a great path, frankly. This meaning what? Well, I think that if you look at, I'm, I'm someone who's deeply concerned about the state of the world, whether it's climate change or whether it's inequality, what, you know, whatever it is, right? I think that a lot of these issues, as I see them, are not in a small way connected to this idea of, I'm not really supposed to love my job. I may be doing a job that I actually think is ethically questionable, but hey, everyone's doing it. I need to collect a paycheck. I need to just sort of move forward and get the job and, you know, the world will be saved or it won't be saved and it won't have anything to do with, with me. And maybe I've always loved art or I've always loved music or I've always loved math, whatever it is, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to just sort of bury that within myself. I don't think that's a great answer for the world and society at large, nor for the individual. So again, I'm a novelist, so I'm not here to speak in sociological terms, but that, that would be my concern. Well, the main character in your book is Seth, a, a junior copywriter. That's your fiction. Your nonfiction also focuses on a lot of these issues. You, you wrote a piece back uh, last year, May, what to do when work drains your creative drive. Is that what happened to Seth? Tell me about this young man who's the center of your novel. Yeah. I, you know, so Seth, when we meet him, he's riding high. He's just written a tagline for an obscure brand of adult men's diapers. And that tagline has gone viral. And so he sees big things for himself. He anticipates the corner office. He's going to make partner at the agency. And pretty quickly, it becomes clear to readers that through his own hubris, Seth is going to lose that job. He's going to lose it all. And we watch him spiral over the course of the novel. And, and the question really is, is he going to not only rebrand himself, is he going to get that business card back? Is he going to be able to re-identify as a, as a copywriter in the way that he wanted to so badly at the beginning? But also, is he going to be redeemed on a deeper level? Is he going to understand the ways in which certain mistakes that he made contributed to his downfall and then work towards self-improvement? Those to me are, are the two questions at the heart of the book. You're talking to me from New Jersey, of course. New Jersey was made famous by Philip Roth, uh, who wrote about different kinds of young men in the 1950s. Mm. Do you think of yourself in some ways as, as rebelling against that kind of literature? He's certainly not that fashionable anymore, Roth, although he pioneered the, the novel about young Jewish men. 
I feel compelled to mention it's also a very hot New Jersey today. It's about 95 degrees. Oh, dear. And my AC is uh, very non-functional at the moment, which is why you see me in a T-shirt. Um, I, why, why would it be a rebellion against someone like Roth? I'm curious. I, I'm, well, I, I, I'm guessing, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you're probably not a great fan of Roth. Um, I'm not. I, I mean, his craft, of course, you appreciate, but the, I don't know what, maybe the nihilism, the sexuality of his work, the selfishness, you know, he, he's someone, I think, who believed that you could be masculine and happy at the same time, and you didn't need intimacy or vulnerability. Coming back to your uh, original remarks on that. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know that. I'm not speaking for Roth. I don't, I don't know that he would have said that necessarily. Um, I mean, I'm very interested in Roth because you can't escape him. Right. Uh, That's yeah, exactly. That's a nice way of putting it. You, you, I can, you can't. No. Yeah. I can't escape him. I mean, growing up in New Jersey uh, with a Jewish, Jewish background, my book has a good amount of sex in it and it's treated much differently than, than the way Roth does. Um, so he's, he's a fascinating model for me. And in, in some ways an inspiration, but he's not, he's not, you know, back there, right. You see like some of my favorite books that I, that I turn to Roth, Roth isn't there. And I am maybe a little bit unfairly or not resentful of Roth because I do think he crowds out a lot of other really brilliant 20th century Jewish American writers who we don't read enough of, whether that's, you know, Vivian Gornick or Leonard Michaels or whoever else, but um, he casts a long shadow, but I don't see my work in opposition to his. And I also don't think that masculinity precludes happiness. I, I just think that when you subscribe to an ideology, which is insistent upon maintaining certain distances where to be tough and to be sort of the ideal man requires a kind of isolation from others in the name of fierce independence. No, I don't think that's a road that, that leads to a whole lot of satisfaction. I'm not sure if Roth wrote universally or just his novels are about mostly Jewish men. You've, you've written a lot about identity. You had one piece in Guernica on being Jewy, um, obviously ironic. Uh, are you, um, I mean, is, is Seth, a universal figure in the book, or is there something distinctively Jewish that could only exist with a, a Jewish young man from New Jersey? Hmm. Yeah, and Seth, Seth is from Maryland. In, in oh, Maryland. I apologize. Well, it's close. It's, yeah. Just down the road. Yeah. You know, I, I think that, I think his being Jewish is integral to his character, particularly as the character goes through the book. At the, very, at the very outset, you get the sense that Jewish identity doesn't really mean a whole lot to Seth. He has this offhanded comment about his mom wanting to have a nice car so that she can park it in the JCC parking lot and have it, you know, ha have the other folks at the JCC take notice. That sort of is his relationship with Judaism. He doesn't seem to think very deeply about it. And then as the book goes on, after he loses his job, and he's really hungry for another brand, another identity, I don't think it's any surprise then that that's when his Jewishness 
comes to the surface and he starts getting involved with Chabad. He starts, you know, becoming um, much more observant, whether that's in earnest or whether that's simply in desperation is, is, you know, the, a, an open question for the reader. So, you know, no, I, I, my hope is that any reader can identify with Seth and also can laugh at Seth because there's a lot of humor at his expense in the book. But I do think that his being Jewish is, is pretty central. There's two, I guess, responses in some ways to being miserable at work and having a, a spiritual crisis, a, a spiritual vacuum in your life. One would be the religious way that Seth goes. The other would be politics. Um, maybe there are th other ones too. Wh why, did, um, why does Seth go towards the Kabbalah rather than Das Kapital? Hmm. I think it's because it's, it's what's offered to him. When he, after he's, and I suppose this is a spoiler, but after he's laid off, um, it's not as if he embarks on a, a journey of, of meaning and spiritual discovery. He's approached by a Chabad rabbi on the street. And the rabbi offers him, you know, dinner. And, and that's where it begins. I, th I think, I don't want to say anything that would crowd out a reader's interpretation because... I'm interested in, in allowing that relationship to exist without my interference as the author. But I do think that if Seth had been handed, you know, that book or any other book, he, he likely would have taken it. It's just that this was the path that appeared to him on that particular day. I mean, that is the state of, of a fundamentally desperate man, right? Is like whatever, if you're drowning, it doesn't matter what the branch is, if, it, if it's being handed to you, you just, you reach for it. Speaking of desperate men, Ben, the other big film of the year, of the summer at least, is Oppenheimer, a very desperate kind of man. We did a show with Olivia uh, Rutigliana uh, last week on it. I'm doing one with her on uh, Barbie this week. They're kind of connected. And what's interesting, I thought, at least about Oppenheimer, I'm not sure if you've seen it, is that Einstein is presented as the sort of, as the wise man, as the man, not just the the great physicist or scientist, but a man who understands spiritual meaning. We, we did a show actually uh, last couple of weeks ago with Benjamin Cohen, who has a book, The Einstein Effect. Um, what about science and that sort of Einstein effect of, of having something to believe in? The, the, I'm not sure if you've seen Oppenheimer, but it suggests that Einstein was able to see through everything. Maybe that's true, maybe it isn't. Whereas Oppenheimer, for all his scientific wisdom, wasn't able to. Uh, is that what we're looking for? Are we all looking for an Einstein? Maybe Seth, you, me, everybody else? The person who sees through everything? Yeah. Yeah, and I haven't seen it. Um, I'm interested in seeing it. Now you've got to see them both. See them back to back. You'll get a headache. Have you have you read uh, When We Cease to Understand the World? No. Okay. Um, which I understand is also in conversation with Oppenheimer in terms of looking at different discoveries over the past um, century and a half and trying to understand different different scientists and the way in which they see through things often to their own demise or, or to the extreme harm of others. I think, you know, my book is most interested in not so much the ability of men to see through things, but 
the ability or disability of men to see themselves clearly. I think that Seth is actually capable of saving himself. I think he is capable of redemption. He's a pretty good copywriter. He had that one good line. But I think that his fatal flaw is that he cannot see himself. He, he's entirely deluded about his own self-importance. And so if he were to zoom out and have a bit of perspective and to see him the way that other characters in the novel see him, then maybe his, his arc would look a little bit different. And that ability or inability of, of men to look at themselves in the mirror and assess themselves honestly is, is very much, I think, a, a question that's at the heart of the book. The, uh, the Kirkus Review described the book as ironic, plangent, gritty, and ultimately spiritual. It's, it's form, uh, message, and medium, Ben, form and function. Is the style of the writing, is that, in a way, the message in the book? Is that grittiness, that uh, irony? Is that what you're suggesting that young men like Seth need to become if they're to escape this horrible predicament that they find themselves in of empty lives? I think, well, there's the, there's the tone of the book, you know? Right. I meant the tone. So I, yeah, I, I don't think Seth is a roadmap for anyone's um, success. I think if anything, he's a cautionary tale. I think that Seth is one of those people who is so invested in his job and does not really see himself outside of what it says on his business card. That, that's where all of his self-worth is. And in an economic environment in which you can be laid off at any moment without really any warning whatsoever, at least here in the U.S., because we have such weak uh, protections for labor, but it's dangerous. It's dangerous because you're going to lose your job potentially, and then you're going to have to figure out how you're going to deal with those expenses. But it's also dangerous on the level of the self, because in the case of my character, Seth, he has, he has no other sense of self. He is, he, he is the work that he does. When he has a tagline go viral, that is, you know, that's, that's who he is, or at least who he wants to believe he is. And then when things go south professionally, he's a bit of a husk. And so I think that it would, it would please me a great deal if people read the book. If people read the book, period, that would please me a great deal. But if people read the book and they reexamined their own relationship with work and the way in which they use their jobs to define themselves and the risks of doing that, um, it would feel to me like the book was doing a service in addition to the service of just being, you know, a, a piece of creative writing that is supposed to deliver enjoyment in and of itself. Yeah. You, I definitely, you, you should have a look at the, um, the Stoltzoff book and another book. I'm not sure if you're familiar by another journalist, uh, Sarah Jaffe work won't love you back. How devotion to our jobs keeps us exploited, exploited, exhausted and alone. She was on the show a couple of years ago. I'm not sure. Are you familiar with her work and that book? I am. And that that's, I think, maybe more ideologically where, where I fall, to be honest. So if there is uh, a conclusion to this conversation, Ben, and to the book, it's reforming capitalism. And, that, and then we can begin to work on reforming the self. Or do they go together? I do think they go together. I think that before 
you know, something like reforming capitalism feels uh, so large and so far off and so impossible that it almost feels ridiculous to talk about. But reforming one's own relationship with their job and pushing back against that very American tendency to when you're at a dinner party and you introduce yourself, you know, the first thing that comes up is what do you do? And, and that's, that's such a huge part of um, how one introduces oneself. What do you say when you're at a dinner party in uh, New Jersey and someone asks you what you do? Yeah, I say I'm a writer. I mean, I say I'm a professor. So it, it's, I'm, not, I'm not saying I'm above this, right? I'm not introducing myself as a, as a Pisces who loves the color blue or, or whatever else, right? I'm not, I'm not saying that I necessarily have models for it. But I do think that why don't we step back and think about why that is our first question, why that is the main question, and who we are serving by maintaining that primary focus in that way. So if we do that, then maybe it's the first step to undertaking a larger and deeply necessary reform, in my opinion. So what should we say, Ben? What's the first question people should ask one another at cocktail parties? Uh, can you pass the drinks? It's probably not a bad way to start. But I think a more serious answer would be, well, well, rather than prescribe a question, why don't I offer you an alternative vision? What would it look like if when we introduced each other, we led with certain vulnerabilities? Like we led with certain honest things that we work so hard to conceal. And the reason this is of interest to me is because, so I'm a novelist, right? The men can't be saved as a novel, but my background is in poetry. And so I've had the experience of someone asking, you know, what do you do, right? And I, I self-identify as a poet. Mm, and your book, uh, For the Love of Endings, did very well from a few years ago. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, when you identify yourself as a poet, it's fascinating to watch people's faces, right? Because it's, a, it's, a, it's not just saying, you know, I'm a graphic designer. It feels, it feels very different to declare yourself as a poet. It feels like you're saying, I'm a sensitive person. I'm a deeply feeling person. I'm, you know, depending on your thoughts about poetry, maybe a bit of a nut, right? Like who, who knows what, when you say poet, what comes to people's minds? It can be lots of different things, but it does feel like a personal disclosure. And so I'm interested in, ways in which people can connect that allow for those sorts of personal disclosures. So it's not the last thing that the person says at the end of the night or at the end of the whole relationship. What would it look like if it were more toward the beginning? I'm interested in that. It's an interesting idea, but is there a danger also that we are falling into a culture of therapy where everything is therapeutic or everything is approached in a therapeutic manner? Hmm. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I think more people going to therapy would not necessarily lead to what I think you might be describing. Like, I'm not like, like is, is the idea that are we going Hey, I lost you there for a second. Should no, go on. You've lost me. That's symbolic. I've lost uh, you. 
What, what, I mean, you were talking about therapy and the dangers maybe otherwise of sort of slipping and sliding into a, a culture of therapy where everyone, when they first meet someone, are introducing themselves perhaps as a kind of therapist, professional or otherwise, or as a patient. I, I offer it to you more as a thought experiment, right? I'm not, I'm not trying to suggest that this is really... Um, in practice, what needs to happen. But I also think, I mean, culture of therapy, it's, it's, it sounds sort of like a derogatory phrase. I think a world in which people had access to therapists, affordable access to therapists, would be a better world. I don't know if I would brand it as a culture of therapy, necessarily. It might just be a better culture. It might be a culture of less violence. It might be a culture of more introspection. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, that, that's how I see it. 